welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. Edward Gibbon tells us that it was in the ruins of the Temple of Jupiter, while listening to the singing of the barefooted friars, that he first began to meditate on a history of the decline and fall of the city of Rome. He was far from the first English visitor to Rome to be deeply and profoundly moved by the ruins of the ancient empire. An early medieval English visitor in the 8th or 9th century wrote a poem describing works of giants decaying. Nor was Gibbon the first to speak of the decline of Rome, as Edward Watts makes abundantly clear in his new book, The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea. No one was ever more preoccupied by the decline of Rome than the Romans themselves. Edward J. Watts is Professor and Alcibiades Vasiliadis Endowed Chair in Byzantine Greek History at the University of California, San Diego. The author of numerous books, he was last on the podcast in episode 93, three years ago, discussing his book, Mortal Republic. Ed Watts, welcome back to Historically Thinking. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to, to talk about this ranging topic. So uh, it is a ranging topic. Uh, I told you, we emailed you last night how a, a friend of mine who does uh, first century, I don't know, languages, Syriac, whatever he does, he does, he was like, so how long is this book? And I was like, he was kind of, he says, wow, it's really hard to write a book that short about such a big topic because you go across 1500 years of history, more or less, and you do it and with great economy. I appreciate that. No, we start in the second, at the beginning of the second century BC, and we we end now. So um, the, <laughs> okay, the story right. of I'm thinking 1453, yeah, but you went. You, it's 2200 years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this this story is is so compelling because uh, the very beginning of Roman literature, with the very first text we have that's written by a Roman author that we have intact in, in entirety. Uh, is a play in which a comic playwright is making fun of the idea of Roman decline. <laughs> and by any objective measure in the second century BC, Rome is not declining. Its territory is increasing, its population is increasing, its economy is growing. And yet that story is there from the very beginning. So let me uh, and let it me stays with us. Let me then uh, let me summarize your argument and you can then correct me. It is that the a preoccupation with the decline of Rome is it is the central preoccupation of Roman intellectual life and a weapon that is used in its politics. I think that that's perfectly, that's a perfect summation of it. What we see with the decline of Rome is that this is a concept that can exist in relation to a reality, but most of the time it doesn't, or a lot yeah. of the time it doesn't. Um, there are real declines in Rome. I mean, of yeah. course, the empire is not there anymore. Uh, so, the empire did fall. It did decline. Um, there, it did there, happen. There was a point I, I I I realized where people are going to be saying, "Hey, who? What are you going to say? Who, who are you going to believe? Me or your lion eyes?" Uh, <laughs> but but of course there is decline. But what's again to emphasize? People are worried about decline in Rome when everything seems great. Yeah, when there's no objective measure that you can mm -hmm. use to talk about the society being in decline. And surprisingly, they don't talk about decline at moments when we would look at the society and say, this is a place that's in a lot of trouble. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, the second century AD is a perfect example of this, where the story is one of Rome's golden age, 
The reality is this is an empire that's losing 10% of its population to a pandemic while not able to defend its frontiers. And yet this story that Romans tell at that moment is one of a, a golden age where everyone is coming together to make society stronger. And so the story of Roman decline is there all the time, but it doesn't always match up to the reality of what's going on in the society. Well, so let's go back to the let's drop that marker again. Let's look at that marker you dropped. What's the what's the first entire Roman text that we have? Which might it might surprise uh, people to have know the answer. Yeah, I mean the earliest things that we have. I mean the the first author that we have substantial stuff from is is the playwright Plautus, um, and Plautus is writing at the turn, the very beginning of the second century BC, so the one nineties, one eighties BC. Um, we have pieces of things before that. We have some um, smaller materials that come before that. But Plautus is the first author we have a really large volume of materials from. Uh, and, and it is actually quite late in the scheme of things in Roman history. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the state is set up, if we believe traditional chronology, in the 8th century BC. The Republic is founded in 509 BC. Um, the first, you know, texts that we have from a large corpus of production by an author is like 300 years after the Republic is set up. We should say in, so we should say it's in Latin, right? Because it's in Latin. Because there are, so the irony is, is that we have earlier sources in Greek about the Romans. Well, we have some, but we don't have, so we have a lot of things from, um, well, we don't have a lot of Greek authors talking about the Romans in a contemporary way. So the first time the Romans actually show up in Greek sources is the sack of Rome by the Gauls in 390-386 BC. And that's the first time Greeks even talk about it in a contemporary way. But the first Roman historian is a man named Fabius Pictor, and he writes his history of Rome in Greek, even though mm-hmm. he is a native Latin speaker, because Greek is the language of literature. Um, mm-hmm. It's the language you use if you're trying to communicate complicated ideas and if you're trying to write histories. And so what Plautus represents is really a kind of new phase where Romans um, are preserving works written in Latin in a substantial way. Well, we're, we're going to tread briefly on ground that you covered in your previous book, Mortal Republic, which is about how, how to kill off a republic. Or, uh-huh. uh, um, so let's uh, talk about decline um, decline, decline, decline. This is a, a theme that that's so old by the time that Plautus is writing, he can make fun of it, um, mm-hmm. apparently. So, uh, but let's talk about Sulla. I want I, I want to go through the book. I, I'm trying to figure out how to approach this relatively short book about this very long and rich topic about which basically now I see everything can be explained by this. This is like, I think <laughs> everything in what we call Western Civ can now be explained by this concept and it, cause it's such a powerful concept in our heads. I mean, it, yeah. it, it occupies a lot of rent free space. Um, but let's talk about Sulla and Cicero. Cicero people have heard of Sulla, not so much, but he is uh, a kind of a interesting, almost demonic figure in the late Republic. Um, he's fascinating. Yeah, Sulla is a terrible human being. Um, I think that <laughs> really it probably um, no one does more to destroy the conception of what it means to be a Roman and live under law than Sulla. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the first person to engage in widespread, well-organized political violence and mass murder. Mm-hmm. Um, And what Sulla is doing is uh, fighting a civil war for largely personal reasons. Um, He is trying to maintain a prominent 
military command that would make him quite rich. Uh, and he uses the opposition that he's facing in Roman political circles as a tool to galvanize supporters by saying that this represents a decline of Roman political norms. Um, it's, it's a decline of Roman political norms to have Sulla's position as commander taken away from him through a political process that Sulla sees as corrupt. This, Sulla uses this to launch a civil war. Um, when he ultimately wins the civil war, he caps his victory by summoning the Senate to a temple that overlooks um, the Circus Maximus. And in that space, during that time when Sulla is announcing his restoration of the Roman Republic from this period of decline, he is torturing to death 10,000 prisoners of war. And so while Sulla is announcing what he is saying is the end of the decline of the Republic and the beginning of its restoration, he's literally doing it before a Senate meeting where he's being drowned out by the cries of prisoners of war that he is torturing to death. Um, and so what you have with Sulla is- It's a Kim Jong-un perfect- move, as we say in the 21st century. That's just, <laughs> it's very, yeah. But this is, this is go, go on, because this is something that we need to like, this is going to repeat itself, right? Yeah. I mean, what, what Sulla does is he has really encapsulated this idea that as a politician, you can do things that otherwise wouldn't be acceptable. Um, and, and wildly unacceptable. I mean, the Roman state does not even really have the power to kill any citizen without trial. Um, and Sulla kills 10,000 of them, strips them of their citizenship and kills 10,000 of them while the Senate is listening. And so what Sulla has said is when Rome enters a period of decline, it can be so severe that the restoration requires the suspension of normal order. It requires you to do things to other people that otherwise you would never, never, ever be legally entitled to do. And so what Sulla says is decline justifies taking away the rights, the liberty, and the property of fellow citizens if you can blame them for causing that decline. Uh, And and this this is revolutionary and incredibly dangerous. Right. So in addition, as as you said in the previous book, and as you touch on in the first chapter here, already with the death of the Gracchi, we've got a situation in which once you lose office in the Republic by, say, 150, 130 BC, um, you are in danger of being killed. So to relinquish office becomes a sort of, eh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure if my life or property or family will be safe. Um and it's really, in fact, it turns out, I would say it's impossible for a republic to go back from that. How do you, how do you retreat after you've gone over that cliff? Sulla takes it even further. Now having, we've gotten to this situation now to restore the republic, to revive, to stop decline, this is all extra legal measures must be taken in order to restore legality. Yeah. You, any means necessary uh, is what Sulla is basically saying. And what's interesting is people are horrified by this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the generation that lived through that civil war are the, the people that we think of as the exemplars of the Roman Republic. People like Cicero, Julius Caesar, Pompey the Great, Crassus, um, Cato the Younger, uh, all of these tremendous figures who sort of sit in the mind of Americans as the, the lions of the Roman Republic, Bruce. all of those are people who lived through this Brutus. Yeah. Yeah, All of them lived through this. Uh, And so all of them have a deep fear of abandoning social norms uh, and doing the sorts of things that Sulla did. 
And yet the idea that saving the Republic may require the violation of social norms is something they also all learned. And so there's this remarkable tension that you see in their careers. And Cicero is, I think, the greatest example of this. Uh-huh. Um, because in 63 BC, Cicero is the consul. He's the chief, uh, you know, the, the chief magistrate in the Roman state. And there is an attempted coup. It's not a very well-executed attempted coup. Uh, but what Cicero does is he ends up sanctioning the execution without trial of Roman citizens. And Caesar actually, in the Senate meeting where they talk about this, says, this is a slippery slope. If you do this, you've removed legal protection and you've done it because of this idea. You know, you, you've not done it in a way that's consistent with our constitutional frameworks. It's not consistent with the way our state is supposed to work. We've basically haphazardly taken people's rights away from them because of this idea that our society is under threat. And that is a slippery slope that takes us down a very bad path. Um, and Cicero will repeatedly write, well, the state shouldn't do things like this, except when it's convenient for Cicero. And there are moments where Cicero will even go back on what he himself wrote about due process and about legal responsibilities and about the place of political violence in, in a society that's supposed to be a representative democracy. And even Cicero, who thought more deeply about these things maybe than any Roman alive, um, Even Cicero will go back on his principles when an emergency dictates it. And so this idea of decline has become so corrosive that uh, it can justify even deep thinkers with sophisticated belief systems abandoning those things when they see that the situation um, is difficult. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and they never come back from that. You're exactly right. Um, Well, there's a lot more you could talk about it, but there's, there's, and and Caesar, of course, then picks up that playbook. Um, But there's, there's also a way in which Sulla's so, um, so he's such a a marker of what could be done to you Mm -hmm. that um, Marius, his predecessor, hadn't done that to people. I mean, there had been other, a few other dictators that, right, before Sulla, but Sulla sets an exemplar so that Caesar, when he uh, crosses the Rubicon, he's doing it because the fear is, right, that his enemies, Pompey, will do something. They will they will be a Sulla to him. Um, Cicero can justify his measures uh, by Cat- that Cat- Catiline. Um, he will be an, another Sulla. So as once yeah. that once that barrier has been crossed by Sulla, there's always the fear that someone will then also follow after Sulla. It's, there's a sort of mutual assured destruction element to it. Yeah. 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 And this is actually uh, an element of Caesar's career that I think is underappreciated because Caesar is a victim of Sulla. Mm-hmm. Um, Caesar's father loses his property. Caesar was uh, almost compelled by Sulla to divorce his wife. Um, Caesar's family had married into the family of um, Marius, and mm-hmm. the, the, you know, the great opponent of Sulla. And so Caesar was victimized by Sulla. And that's why he lived in fear of these, these sorts of actions. Mm-hmm. Um, when he spoke in 63, he spoke not only of principle, but he spoke from experience. And I think the thing that everyone looks at in Caesar's career that is difficult for a lot of people to explain is why does Caesar pardon all of these people and bring them back into political life when mm-hmm. the the custom after Sulla was, you know, Sulla killed those people. Mm-hmm. He never brought them back in. He didn't trust them, so they were dead. Caesar brought them back in, in large part, I believe, because he knew what Sulla brought. He knew what that led to. Mm-hmm. And Caesar would rather take his chances with people who are willing to rehabilitate themselves and 
participate in society again, uh, than to do what Sulla did and do mass executions of people just because they had once opposed Caesar. And the irony is, of course, that led to Caesar's death. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the the other thing that we get out of that is it taught a lesson to Augustus yes. um, that was a very important lesson in reshaping political life in Rome. Go 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 on with that because Augustus does something which is always. I mean, as a student, it was so hard for me to understand um, because talk about who are you going to believe me or your lion eyes? This is Augustus establishes an empire and says, "I've preserved the republic." He changes yeah. all sorts of norms and say, "No, no, 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 no. Things are now more the way they were than ever. I'm not a new Tarquin. I'm not a king. I'm not. A, I'm this. Is, I'm just the." You know, I'm just the princeps. I'm just, uh, this things are normal. Things have been restored. Yeah. Augustus is the most difficult historical figure I think Roman historians deal with. Huh. Um, because early in his career, Augustus is probably on the same level as Sulla. Yeah. Um, he murders large numbers of people. He takes the property of 19 Italian towns and redistributes it among his soldiers simply because the soldiers are loyal. Um, he dispossesses lots and lots more people of their resources. Um, he is every bit as bad as Sulla in the early phase of his career. And that, that phase lasts longer than Sulla's phase too. Um, Augustus comes into prominence in 44 BC, and he doesn't finally win the civil war against Antony until 30 BC. Hmm. So there's a long period where Augustus is this horrible, horrible person doing horrible things in the name of restoring the Republic. Um, but then there's this whole period, a 44-year period beyond that, where Augustus creates a structure that preserves rights, uh, that reincorporates people, um, and creates basically an imperial structure that in one form or another is going to endure and evolve for 1,500 years. And so Augustus is on the one hand, one of the most destructive people in all of Roman history but also one of the most constructive people in all of Roman history. Uh, And which Augustus do we talk about as a historian? And how do we cover a career of somebody who on the one hand is as much a murderous dictator as anyone in all of Roman history, and on the other hand is probably the most constructive political figure in Roman history as well. Um, But the, the key to this is this rhetoric of decline. Uh, Because what Augustus is doing in fighting the civil wars is he's basically saying he is overthrowing, he's reacting to the murder of Caesar, which was in his view illegal. Um, He's punishing the people who had done this to his adopted father uh, and had disrupted Roman political life. And he's promising a restoration basically of law, order, and good morals. Um, What he creates is a restored version of the Republic that isn't a Republic at all, and a restored version of Roman morality that isn't Roman morality at all. Uh, And so he knows all of the right words to say, to fit into these longstanding um, Roman traditions of moral decline, political decline, social decline. Uh, And yet the society he recreates, the society he creates uh, acknowledges those traditions, but does things in a completely different way. Uh, And so the Republic he restores has one person who doesn't hold a dictatorial office. He just holds the power of a lot of different offices that add up to dominance over the political process. 
And so Augustus is able to say, I restored the Republic and I brought all of the offices back to normal. And I never held an office. I don't hold an office that anyone had ever. Um, I don't hold an office that never existed before. All my mm. powers are constitutional powers. What he doesn't say is all of those powers add up to a complete dominance over the state. Uh, and so he's able to claim he restored the Republic. Um, he says that he restores public morals. Well, the d discussion about public morality in the first century was all about people being overly ambitious, people being greedy, people uh, taking advantage of legal loopholes and other things to make themselves wealthy. These are the people Augustus bases his regime on. He's basing his regime on ambitious, uh, socially uh, upwardly mobile people who are not from great families, are not from wealth, are not from privilege, are not from prominence. Uh, and so he can't get those people out of the system because they are his new governing class. So what mm -hmm. he does instead is focus on sexual morality, mm -hmm. uh, something that later Republican thinkers had talked a little bit about, but it wasn't the moral decline that they had focused on. Mm -hmm. And so what Augustus does is he claims a restoration using the words that Romans had traditionally used to talk about what their society should be and how it had declined, um, but he redefines them. And he mm -hmm. redefines them in a way that allows him to set up an autocracy that exists using the terms of a republic. Mm -hmm. So let's fast forward 100 years from the time of Augustus. Um, Back to Edward Gibbon, uh, he famously says there's any period in human life with the greatest happiness of gr the period of great uh, of human life, the greatest felicity, I think, uh, is the reign of the the emperors. Uh, what would it be? Nerva, Trajan, uh, Antonius, no, Hadrian, Antonius Pius, and Marcus Aurelius. And those are called. Those are the which? Who are they? The Antonines? No. The five good emperors or the, the five Antonines? good emperors, yeah. the five good emperors, the Antonines, and and this this is um, now I, I think I've I've picked up on this argument from Mary Beard and other and other places that um, you know and, and I and I just know that I I'm gonna hopefully I'll live long enough to see Tacitus is gonna have his reputation restored, but right now Tacitus <laughs> is a lying creep. Um, <laughs> and I think just people are bitter about having to translate them myself. I mean, I knew I was, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, uh, but you know, Tacitus is, uh, a, he's one of these pro stylists who's so powerful. He can fool you. Um, yeah. he can, he can pull the wool over your eyes. Um, and even when you're translating him badly in Latin, you realize, man, this dude can write. And, you know, and yeah. there are a couple of good English translations. We'll have to put them in the show notes. They'll just, I mean, you know, you read the speech of the life of Agricola and you read the, you know, they call it, they make a desert and call it peace. This is good stuff. But yeah. the problem is there's a distortion field effect. So we should get into that. And then the way that we, by overreading Tacitus, you're, are, you are picking up on other people who are arguing that we've, we've misunderstood the Antonine period. Yeah, and I think what we've particularly misunderstood is the Emperor Domitian. Yeah. Um, who, because okay. there's a who whole is, group yeah. of – yeah, the, the Emperor Domitian is the person who had to give his life so the Antonine period could start. Hmm. Um, and Domitian is an emperor uh, – what you see when you look at like the big picture of Roman history is there's a kind of – I guess you would say like a 15-year itch. 
where there's a lot of emperors who don't make it for very long because they're not capable or they don't ever secure power. Then there's a group that make it, but only make it into like their 15th year or thereabouts. And then there's another burst of kind of assassinations right around that period where people basically have gotten tired of the person and they get antsy and they realize maybe they're never going to be emperor if this person sticks around. And so there's a whole nother batch of people who get killed right around the 15 year period. And then once you get past that window, you're there for people are just they're just willing to be stuck with you. And so you have a, a few emperors who go 30, 40 years. Um, but Domitian dies in the beginning of the 16th year that he's in power. It's three mm -hmm. days after he celebrates the beginning of that year. And when you look at his career, what you see is this is a figure who was basically playing the long game, who was young when he took power and was rebuilding Rome in a way that was sustainable, but making decisions that in the short term didn't look particularly good, but had long-term benefits. Uh, and this greatly frustrated certain people. Um, yeah, I mean, some can, examples of this. Could, yeah, give an example. Because my, my vague sense of demission was like proto-secret police creep. <laughs> and there are elements of that too. I mean, he yeah. also, as you get to your 15th year, you're sick of some of the behavior of people. But um, I mean, his frontier policy and his financial policy are two good examples of this. So his frontier policy along the northern frontier was uh, not to conquer more territory beyond the Rhine and Danube River. Instead, what he did was he, he diminished the power of anybody along those frontiers to threaten Rome. And then he built a sequence of alliances uh, and got permission to traverse other people's territories so that he could defend Rome against these people if these people got rowdy. But he had no interest in taking that territory because he didn't feel it was in the best interest of Rome to expand. So instead, what he did was he created a frontier system. Mm -hmm. um, to opponents in the Senate and to later historians writing about this, this is seen as cowardice. You know, Rome mm -hmm. had the power to conquer these people. Why didn't it do it? Um, but what Domitian understood was it was better to build a system that had all of these parts that checked one another than to take responsibility for managing all of this craziness on the other side of the frontier and pay for all the infrastructure it would take to conquer it. Um, and his financial policy is something similar, where you had from the reign of Nero on a period of, of gradual um, depreciation of the silver currency um, and decreasing the size of the gold currency. And so you were beginning to get inflation. What Domitian did was he stopped this and increased again the amount of gold and silver in the currency without doing anything to create problems in the economy. And so it's a very sophisticated and successful economic policy, and he's the only emperor able to do something like that. Hmm. Um, and so what we see with Domitian is somebody who is playing a very long game. I mean, he expects to be there for a long time. And so he's making investments that look questionable at the outset. They're going to pay long-term dividends. Um, but when he's assassinated, the Emperor Nerva takes over and he undoes a lot of these policies. And what you get is chaos. Mm -hmm. um, he cannot manage the empire. Uh, he's threatened with a couple of coups. Uh, he even has to adopt the future Emperor Trajan. Um, because if he didn't, Trajan would have launched a coup. And there's very clearly negotiations between supporters of Trajan and Nerva that uh, intimate that Trajan will rebel if you don't do something about it. And so Nerva adopts Trajan as his son and successor and then dies within the next year. And this begins a process of adoptive succession that continues for all of the five good emperors. Mm -hmm. 
So the one of the reasons why the five good emperors seem good is that the succession crises are much less in this period than they are sort of any time at any time uh, at, during the rest of the empire. Is that right? Is that? Uh, yeah, for a lot of well, for a lot of the empire, this is true. Um, yeah. That they reign without any dispute for a very long time, mm-hmm. and part of why we see Tacitus um, talking about Domitian in the way that he does is when imperial dynasties fall, you have to justify murdering somebody. Mm-hmm. And so you have to say that the action that led to the death of Domitian was justified. It was the only solution we had, right? Domitian wasn't going to get any better. He was a horrible person. Um, and the empire needed to be rid of him. And this was the only thing that could happen. And so a number of people who did quite well under Domitian start writing things under Nerva and Trajan that attack Domitian viciously. And Tacitus does this, um, but Tacitus had been, uh, you know, a very successful politician who rose from basically nothing under Domitian. Suetonius, who writes a, a really just um, horribly vicious attack of Domitian in his life of Domitian, uh, Suetonius basically went from a provincial lawyer who was anxious to speak in public to somebody who is very much on the fast track to a high position and prominence under Domitian, Pliny. Uh, to be fair, Suetonius was vicious about everybody, but Domitian was the guy. <laughs> That's why we love Domitian him. Domitian gets it worse. <laughs> Domitian gets it worse. Um, and Domitian was the one emperor that, as you say, that he had, he had grown up under, as it were, and come yeah. to. Yeah. Uh, and Pliny is a similar one. Pliny yeah. attacks Domitian viciously. Pliny also greatly benefited under Domitian and got special privileges from Domitian. Plutarch yeah. also. Yeah. Uh, and so what you see with Domitian is a lot of the people we read that have the worst attacks on Domitian are actually people who, if we're being honest, are overcompensating for the fact that they built their careers around service to Domitian. And we're and probably, also, you know, yeah. and the, most also, horrible, the most, it's, yeah, yeah. These are, is the best example of that. Yeah, yeah. Let's go. And these are also, we just talked about uh, Tacitus, Suetonius, Plutarch. Uh, these are the most important Roman historians of in Roman history, right? So this is yeah. talk about it's not just Tacitus who's got the re- reality distortion field sort of shining on things. So why isn't Trajan all that great? Why isn't he all that? So I think what we see with Trajan is a person who comes in and realizes Rome has the capacity to do a lot more than it was doing under Domitian, and Trajan uses that capacity to overextend the empire. Um, And so there are a few moves that that Trajan makes that work out. He absorbs the kingdom, the Nabataean kingdom of Arabia, centered on Petra um, and Bostra in what's now Jordan and and Syria. Um, He secures that without without basically firing a shot. Uh, And he uses this as a way to build a road network so he can invade Iraq. Um, This is also going on at the same time that he invades Romania. Now, Domitian had worked out a deal with the Dacians, the people who are in control of what's now most of modern Romania, where he basically built bridges and had right of passage across Dacian territory. So he could use this as part of his frontier system to keep Germans on the other side of Dacia under control. Uh, What Trajan did is he invades Dacia and conquers Dacia. Um, But the conquest of Dacia and the invasion of Iraq work out about as well as you would imagine. Uh, There is a a very good frontier between Roman territory and Dacian territory. That's the Danube River. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to cross and it's very defensible. There isn't really a good frontier once you get on the other side of it. Uh, And so you have territory that's going to be very difficult to defend, a lot more difficult to defend than the Danube River would have been. 
In Iraq, uh, the invasion of Iraq just leads to the people who controlled Iraq moving into the mountains of what's now, you know, Iran, uh, and then launching guerrilla warfare attacks into Iraq um, pretty aggressively. And Iraq is not something that the Romans can maintain. And so with Trajan, what we see is a person whose headlines are really glowing and spectacular. There are a lot of very important Roman victories that he wins that are really impressive. And the empire reaches its greatest extent under Trajan to the point where he's able to even walk in the Persian Gulf as a Roman emperor who you know, controls the mouth of the Persian, the mouth of um, the great rivers in Mesopotamia at the Persian Gulf. But it's unsustainable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when his successor takes over, he has to withdraw from Iraq. Um, he can't maintain it. The war is not going well. And he realizes that strategically, this was a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, he wants to withdraw from Dacia. He just can't because there have been too many Romans who have come in as settlers to populate that area. And so he has to maintain Dacia, but he doesn't want that either because he realizes it's a strategic disadvantage for Rome. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the first territory that becomes a province that Rome withdraws from is Dacia because mm-hmm. it's simply not defensible. This is Hadrian we're talking about, who, as people might realize, likes walls and builds them. And, <laughs> and, and he, he, some, he doesn't want, he's marking a line beyond which Rome won't go. It has yeah. no need to go any farther than that. Um, so the Golden Age uh, wasn't all that great. Um, and the point being here is that this is a period of decline of, let's say, creakiness in the structure. And yet, at this point, they're not talking about it. Right. Yeah, I think when we look at the golden age of the Antonines, what we see is, first of all, um, this is the the age of the five good emperors, and it's really an age when it's good to be an emperor. Mm-hmm. Emperors live out their natural lifespan. Five in a row live out their natural lifespan and die you know, in their beds, more or less. Um, but the conditions in the empire, especially as you start getting towards the end of the Antonine age, are not great. Um, I don't think anybody would choose to live under Marcus Aurelius, despite what Edward Kibben says. Uh, it's a time where cities are being completely depopulated. The economy is really un- under strain. Um, the population is collapsing because of the plague to the point where Marcus has to invite in Germans to come and settle, even in Italy, because there just aren't enough people for the place to run anymore. Hmm. Um, it's not a great time, but it's described as a great time because, first of all, the leadership is exceptional under especially Marcus Aurelius. But then second of all, it's described as a great time because there is no one pushing back. Um, you know, th- there is no Tacitus after Domitian or Pliny after Domitian who's going to step up and say, well, Marcus was terrible. You know, in retrospect, that this didn't work out. Because what happens um, even after the Antonine dynasty falls is the next dynasty that's set up embraces the Antonine dynasty. Mm-hmm. Uh, Septimius Severus, who is the, the founder of the next Roman dynasty, actually claims that he was adopted by Marcus Aurelius. Um, there's, I mean, there's no way that was true, but he makes that claim because it, first of all, grounds his dynasty in a sort of continuity with the Antonine past. But then second of all, this has the effect of closing the door on anyone's attempt to look back on the Antonines and say this was a time of decline mm-hmm. because the next dynasty doesn't even try to do that. And so you don't have contemporaries saying it while Marcus is reigning, at least in literature that we possess. Um, you don't have further, like, further generations doing it because the political imperative is to not say the Antonines were bad. And so our historical imagination is captured by this disconnect. We know what those conditions were like, 
but the stories we're getting and the the qualifications about how the Antonine emperors behaved are all positive. Uh-huh. And so even though the conditions are, are demonstrably bad and, and declining, uh, the story is that Rome is well administered, that it's doing well, and that whatever problems occur are those sorts of natural problems that occur all the time. And Rome is being governed well. And so it's adapting and correcting to correcting to fix the things those problems have caused. So one of the uh, yet uh, things aren't going all that well, um, especially if you're an emperor. I mean, if, from that perspective, we've got a series of emperors who their lives are nasty, brutish, and short. Um, <laughs> and like people who, you know, Philip the Arab, who's he other than a head on a, a coin? And I don't think anyone really knows. Uh, but uh, then we've got uh, Diocletian's reforms. So can, how, does Diocletian's uh, reformation of the imperial structure, does it fit in with other uh, Roman dis- discussions or um, the discourse of decline? I, I've never used the word discourse on the podcast, but this is a, I absolutely have to <laughs> at this point. There's this the overall conversation about decline that you're tracing through centuries. How does Diocletian reflect that? How does he alter it? How does he use it? Yeah, Diocletian is fascinating because uh, after the end of the Severan dynasty, we have what's called the uh, third century crisis by modern historians. And, and this is an idea that comes out of the fact that there's a significant amount of political instability. So you have more emperors than there are years between the death of Alexander Severus in 235 and the ascension of Diocletian in, in 284. Um, and some of those are very short-lived, you know, civil war type emperors, but it is not a time of stability and lots of dynasties rise and fall. And every time one of these emperors falls, you get the, you get the discussion of decline. Um, You know, that emperor fell because he was bad because he did a good, he didn't do a good job. Uh, And so as you have, you know, more than 50 emperors across 50 years, you have lots and lots and lots of people saying this was, this emperor was bad. And then the new, the next emperor also is bad. And the next emperor also is bad. And so you have this period that looks, I mean, it's not a good time for the Roman empire, but it looks a lot worse even than it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what Diocletian is able to do when he takes power is change the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have a lot of texts that are per- speeches performed when emperors come to town um, that date from the period between basically the mid 280s and, and the mid 310s. And so a lot of these center around the, the period when Diocletian is restoring things. And what we see there is there's kind of two phases to Diocletian. There's about a 15 year period where Diocletian is genuinely restoring things. Um, he's speaking about administrative problems, military problems. Um, he's speaking about problems with the tax system and the financial uh, elements of the Roman state. And he is really fixing things. Um, and it really is a period where you can say there were sustained systemic problems in the third century. <clears throat> and Diocletian is restoring Rome so that those problems are no longer there. Uh, but then as you get into the fourth century, you reach that that 15-year point where Diocletian is getting a little antsy. People are getting a little antsy about Diocletian. And what you see is a shift that uh, I think if we were to think about it in modern terms, this might actually be the kind of shift you see with Putin, right? I mean, Putin takes over Russia at a time of pretty significant problems. And Putin does a great deal to do things like solve the Chechenian problem and the military weakness that that reflects. But then Putin fixes those problems. And what do you do? How do you justify still being there? Uh And with Diocletian, 
the justification for still being there is now I did all these things to fix it. Now I need to defend my solutions. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's the last phase of Diocletian's career where we start seeing him behaving really horribly. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the great persecution of Christians is something that's launched in this context. Um, The maximum price edict where he sets prices for every good and service that he can think of across the empire is also something that comes from this period. That always works. And these are things that Diocletian very clearly describes as we fixed a problem and now we have to secure the solution. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's a phase in Diocletian's career um, that doesn't work as well. Uh, yeah. He is a transformative emperor. He makes the empire, uh, completely remakes the empire and sets it up to function effectively for the better part of the next 300 years. Um, and Constantine, who's the next great emperor after him, builds on those reforms to sort of complete an administrative structure that will make the empire successful. But Diocletian sticks around for too long. And the interesting thing is, Diocletian seems to know this because Diocletian retires. Which is He's the uh, only Roman yeah. emperor <laughs> who voluntarily retires and is invited back and refuses to come back because he realized, you know, that was it. That was what I had to offer. And instead I'm gonna to go to split and live by the sea and farm cucumbers and it will be yeah. awesome. That uh he must have been a very I've often thought he must have been a very unusual man. I mean, there aren't that many people, you know, uh in human history who've done something like that. Uh, yeah, cat. no, and, and I think he was incredibly self-aware about it too. I, you yeah. know, I, I think that he, um, I think that he understood that yeah. there's just a limit to how much of this you can take, uh, and how much of this people will take from you. Uh, and if you hang on, things will not go as well. So here's where we get a real change. Um, people are going to keep on until the present moment, discussing decline of Rome, decline of X. And yet, simultaneously with Diocletian's reforms, there are these powerful, another powerful set of powerful and dangerous ideas, particularly if you're like a Roman emperor, um, is uh, Christianity. And one of the set of dangerous ideas that comes with it is conceptions of progress. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, we talked with Tom Holland about his book, Dominion, um, about how this is an inescapable fact of modern life that nonetheless escapes our observation. And one of them is conceptions of progress, uh, which our ideas of progress are so different uh, mm-hmm. for, the, um, uh, uh, for the classicist, for the, uh, for the classical person. Uh, and so could you explain how this is added into the mix while yet at the same time, the idea or almost ideal of decline persists. Yeah. This is the, I think the underappreciated story of the fourth century. So when the emperor Constantine converts to Christianity uh, and eventually takes control of the full Roman empire, he wants to push the uh, adoption of Christianity across the entire empire, but he doesn't want to do it violently. And he needs to figure out how to explain this because the Roman Empire, and especially in religious terms, the Roman world was very traditional. And it, it tended to believe that uh, the way you could tell the power of a god was how well the society that worshipped the god did. And so if you're worshipping the wrong god as a society, you will die as a society because that god doesn't have the power to support you. Mm-hmm. Um, and what Constantine does initially when he embraces Christianity is he tells Romans, look, Christianity is actually the primeval human religion. 
the God that we worship is the one true God. And what's happened over time is people have lost track of what that actually is. And so we've wandered away from what the true religion is and the true God is. Uh, and what I'm doing is not something that's new. It's something that's very old. So he's the, uh, he's the Augustus of religion. Exactly. Yeah. And so what he understands deeply is uh, idea of progress is not something that's going to sell Christianity to Romans. <laughs> Instead, what you have to do is say, this is making us not different than we've been, but, but getting us back to what we should have been all along. It's a restoration mm-hmm. from a decline, a religious decline that's millennia in the making. Um, but after Constantine's death, Christian thinkers begin pushing a different idea, an idea that the Roman Empire should embrace Christianity and become something that it has never been before. And that will make Rome better than it has ever been before because there are now new technologies for worshiping better. Uh, And so Christians in the fourth century start saying we should get rid of traditional religion and we should make everybody embrace Christianity and we as a state should support Christianity, not because it's what what the primeval religion was, but because it's progress. And this is a real shift in the way Romans talk about their society and its, uh, and its orientation, um, because Romans hadn't talked about progress. You know, the story of decline always looked backwards, always had an idealized past that you were trying to recapture or, or at least sort of replicate. And what the Christian idea of progress is, is something completely different. We're going to create a society that's never existed before, and it will be better. Trust us. Yeah. So this uh, is this is the the off use trope, and we can argue about this. Is the sick the cyclical view of the the ancients, both Greeks and Romans, right? That they were trapped in a in a sort of a circle, and that there's there's renewal in the circle, right? As opposed to sort of a linear that goes all the way from Jesus to Marx and beyond. Um, that there's yeah. we're heading towards something. Yeah, uh, and you know, and I think what the ancients would say is that. Cycle may result in disaster, but it also gives us tools to get us back to where we ought to be. And a Mm -hmm. successful state, as Plato or Polybius would say, a successful state is one that has mechanisms to avert the crises that come when that cycle tries to reset itself. Mm -hmm. You know, so Plato's Republic is creating a system where all of the best parts of that system are preserved and they counteract any tendency that you might have for that system to degenerate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is what Romans thought they were doing with this rhetoric of decline was providing checks so that they never fell back into that position where they were disintegrating and where they were losing um, the things that had made them strong initially. And what Christians were saying is throw that away right? Mm -hmm. There's a better way. There's something better. We can make a better society that will function even better than we ever have been before. So let's get back on like your sort of original intellectual territory way back when with your first books. And let's go with the intellectual clash of the Titans in the 300s, which is Symmachus versus Ambrose. So if you could set these two up because they are both formidable figures uh, in their, in each in their own ways and, and, and then talk about what they are arguing about. Yeah, this is the, in a sense, the moment where these two stories clash most mm-hmm. aggressively, most yeah. clearly. Um, so in 384, the, uh, the emperor Gratian has been assassinated and his young brother has taken power. And the brother is not old enough to make any decisions. Uh, but the only way that he's been able to maintain control of Italy was through cooperation with pagan senators led by Symmachus and the Christian church led by Ambrose. 
and so Ambrose is the most powerful bishop in Italy, not the Pope. Ambrose is the Bishop of Milan, but he's the most powerful bishop in Italy. And Symmachus leads a senatorial faction um, that has consolidated a, elite wealthy support around this emperor. And what Gratian, the man who has just died, had done was uh, take a radical step for the first time in Roman history to remove state support for traditional religion. Uh, this is something that Roman religion believed the state had to pay for the religious rites performed in the city of Rome because this is how you kept the gods happy. And so when Gratian does away with this, Symmachus initially tries to appeal. The appeal goes nowhere because he has no leverage. But now in 384, Symmachus thinks he might have leverage. And so he makes an appeal to the emperor uh, and to the imperial court saying we need to bring back the support of traditional religion. If we don't do this, we are going to have all sorts of very tangible problems. And so this is not an issue of religion for Symmachus. It's an issue of very tangible state outcomes. And Symmachus says explicitly there won't be enough food. Um, barbarians will start attacking us and we won't be able to defend ourselves. All of these are things that devotion to the traditional gods prevented. And all of these are things that will now be facing us because we've walked away from the traditional gods. And Ambrose come back, comes back and says, you know what? No, it's not about what we've done before. It's about the better world we can create. And so where Symmachus is saying, we are on the verge of encountering um, a trajectory that will bring us into this very decline that we were just talking about, a decline that is so profound that it will shake the state and maybe destroy the state. And Ambrose says, no, it's not about that at all. Uh, instead, the state is going to get better because now we have better religious technology, better approaches to the divine, and the Christian God is better than these other gods. So the state will improve. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting thing about this is both of them are speaking theoretically because in 384, the state looks like it's in reasonably good shape. This seems like it's a theoretical argument, uh, and the consequences of it will you know, not be felt in anybody's lifetime. But 25 years later, the city of Rome is sacked by barbarians. Uh, the and then all of a sudden, these arguments are not theoretical. They're very, very real. Mm -hmm. Symmachus looks prophetic, and Ambrose looks discredited. And so what do Christians do? And what happens to the narrative of progress? And this is taken up by Ambrose's great student. Um, yeah, he's a student in a way. That's sort of like the Plato and Aristotle of the Latin theologians, uh, Ambrose and Augustine of yeah. – uh, everyone pause for a snicker, kids. Augustine of Hippo. It's Hippo Radius. <laughs> it's royal horse, okay? Uh, but, you know, he's been – he's actually been patronized by Symmachus. Uh, he knows both Symmachus and Ambrose. He's been baptized by Ambrose. Um, and now he's back in North Africa and he sees the sack and they've got Roman refugees and he has to explain what happened to progress there, Bish. Um, yeah, what's going and, on there? And and this gets another, and, and eventually this becomes an argument amongst Christians. So I want to, we want to go through Augustine with this transition to Augustine's argument, but also then with his later contemporary, I think Paulinus, uh, yeah. but well, because well, it's a, fascinating character but go on let's let's hit augustine briefly so augustine is fascinating because augustine is never short of words he always knows what to say and after the sack of rome we have a document where augustine says you know what parishioners somebody comes up to you and a pagan comes up to you and says you know your narrative of progress it was so wrong and now look at decline is very clearly borne out by the fact rome is sacked Augustine says, I don't really have an answer for you. Just cut the conversation <laughs> short and leave. 
Uh, that's it's a rare moment. All yeah, the, all the things we've talked about to hear Augustine without words is uh, one of the most remarkable historical moments. And to me, to me, to be honest, how many professors would say that? I, I just don't know what to say. <laughs> no, it doesn't happen all that often. Believe me. No, it's a very good preschool teacher reaction. But, uh, it is. It is. <laughs> professors, no, not so much. Um, and so what Augustine tries to do is come up with a response. And this starts in the 410s, and he uh, he patronizes a man named Erosius to write a history of Rome, in which Erosius is supposed to glorify all of the horrible things that have ever happened in Rome to try to make the sack of Rome not look so bad. Um, and that's explicitly what he says. You know, the sack of Rome wasn't so bad because look at this and this and this and this and this and this. And while Erosius is doing this, it, you know, it, it provides you something to say if you're that Christian talking to the pagan. Um, but Augustine starts work on the city of God. And the city of God begins in the aftermath of the sack of Rome, but he keeps working on it as conditions in the West get worse and worse. Uh, and so ultimately where Augustine arrives uh at the end of the city of God is this idea that Christian progress is very real, but it's not about the Roman empire. It's about you as a Christian and it's about a Christian community. And he's using um, the word that we translate as city is actually kivitas, which means kind of can mean city, but it can also mean a kind of citizen body or a polity. And so what Augustine is saying is you might be focusing on the polity that is the Roman empire, but that's not really what this is about. Jesus is not promising us a better Roman empire. He's promising us membership in a divine community that doesn't need the Roman empire to exist. And so the Roman empire can be there. And if it helps you make, it helps make you a better Christian. Great. You know, good support the Roman empire. But if it falls and it's not there anymore, you can still be a good Christian and you can still be a member of this Christian community. And that Christian community is what matters. Um, and this is an idea that allows Christians to, in a sense, salvage the idea of Christian progress. You are moving. It's just you're not moving as a society. You're not moving as a country. You're not moving as a nation or an empire. You're moving as an individual. And the community you belong to is not a national community. It's a religious community. Uh, and so you can have Christian progress while the political elements of the Roman world collapse. And when we get to Paulinus's Eucharisticon, his poem of Thanksgiving, which I love Paulinus because both, is, both Kivitas, I mean the both Kivitas and Eucharisticon have double meaning, of course. You didn't, I mean it's yeah. it's it is Eucharisticos. I mean Eucharisticon. I mean it's it's Thanksgiving, yes, but it's also Eucharist. I mean it's Eucharist, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's plain. Yeah, right. and so and, and this is exactly what Paulinus is saying. Um, mm -hmm. Is he's saying. So Paulinus is in some ways an even more fascinating figure than Augustine because he's born into, um, I think what you could say is maybe like the Kennedys of what's now mm -hmm. France. It's a very, very wealthy and prominent family. Uh, he's the grandson of probably the most important figure in Gratian's empire. Um, and so he's born and he writes about his childhood and he's you know, wearing the, the latest fashion from Rome and he's racing horses in the countryside and he marries an heiress and gets gets a vineyard in Bordeaux. And, you know, it's it's our imagined idea of what aristocratic life should be like. By the time he dies, he lives in a small apartment in Marseille. He's lost <laughs> all of this. Um, and so we would expect this to be somebody who's going to be embittered by the experience of losing not only all of his wealth, but also his space in a Roman state, because he doesn't even live in doesn't even live in the empire anymore. The empire has lost the territory that he now inhabits. Instead, what Paulinus says is, I'm 
incredibly thankful that God put me on this journey because it made me a better Christian. And so what Paulinus does is he rewrites the book of Job and applies it to the experience of a Roman living through the loss of all of his property and the loss of his state. Uh, And he ends by saying, I'm thankful to you, God, for doing this, because if I had preserved all of those things I was born with, I wouldn't be a good Christian. And now I am. And so you have here a narrative of material decline but personal progress, spiritual progress. Uh, And so this is the move that the West sort of makes. In these territories in Northwestern Europe that stop being Roman, Romans have to figure out how you understand this because they did very clearly as Christians embrace a break from the way the state had worked in the past, and then the state failed. Uh, And so what do you do with this narrative of progress that you are so invested in? Well, you turn it in such a way that the progress represents still progress, just a different kind of, um, using a different kind of measurement and a different kind of metric. So we could keep on talking about the West, but I wanted to talk about Byzantium um, because, you know, you're a professor of Byzantine history um, and, uh, and, uh, I love Byzantine history because it's the other, um, it's, uh, it's just different. It, you, you, it's like, it's having your head tilted to one side to see things and then seeing other things more clearly because you are looking at it. Um, and I, I wanted to, we should, I, we should probably talk about Justinian. Um, but I want to talk about Heraclius. Um, I'm hoping to have, uh, a conversation soon on the podcast with the uh, really the I think the the best single best book that's been written for decades maybe on Heraclius the last war, the great last great war of antiquity, um, mm-hmm. but um, let's talk about because Heraclius's story is one of the best damn stories of the entire all of medieval Europe and it's the one no one knows about because it you yeah. see it seems like a novel, it seems like someone made this up, <laughs> but it's of it's about apocalypse and redemption and apocalypse. Those are like the three, yeah. <laughs> the three things. Cause you describe that cause all of these themes come in and there are poems written about it. I think, cause I think a lot of the things that only things that survive often are poems about Heraclius and some, some hymns and stuff like that, but the sources are awful. They're very difficult. Yeah. Um, but could you describe that and, and how this fits now into this continuing discussion of decline? Yeah, so I think it's important to start that by saying the state that we call the Byzantine Empire is called by the people living in it, Romania. Uh, right. The people living in it are call themselves Romans, and it is the same state that was set up in Italy. Just a um, tip in, for you know, listeners, century BC. there's never been a Byzantine historian who didn't say that when they're speaking to an audience about Byzantine history. That's exactly, that, that's a patented <laughs> phrase that was just almost word for word. Go on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so what we what we have with Heraclius is a figure who um, we have to understand this is a Roman emperor, right? I mean, yeah. this is a, a Roman emperor r- ruling over a Roman state. And so it's a state that um, at the time Heraclius launches his political career, launches his rebellion, it runs from the Atlantic Ocean, basically, to you know Jordan and Saudi Arabia. It runs from the Crimea down to almost Sudan. Um, it includes territory in southern Spain, territory in Italy, uh, most of the Balkans. Um, but it is a state that is about to fall apart because this is a state that is encountering wars on nearly every front. Um, the Balkans are on the pro- in the process of being kind of lost to invaders. 
the east is very near to being lost to invaders. And so Heraclius uh, launches his rebellion in 610. And by 620, the state is down more or less to parts of what's now uh, the coast of Greece, um, some of Italy and Sicily, uh, pieces of North Africa, and uh, you know a little bit of well, a little bit of the coastal areas of what's now Turkey. And it's um, and, and Constantinople uh, is being besieged by both barbarians working hand in hand with, of all people, the renewed Persian Empire. I mean, yeah, it's like right out of Her- it, it's like right out Herodotus. All these Greek speaking uh, Romans, they're all reading their Herodotus, and they're like, yeah. "Oh my God!" After a thousand years, they're still at our throats, and it's like so, this is Thermopylae too. My friend too. Anthony Caldalis um, yeah. has said about Constantinople that in the medieval world, there's three types of cities: there's unwalled cities, there's walled cities, and there's Constantinople. That's right. Um, and, and the reality is Constantinople is walled. It's a peninsula. Uh, it has land walls that are so ahead of their time that they won't be breached until 800 years after they're built. And really, um, to destroy those walls, you needed the cannons that the Ottomans brought. Uh, and then it's also surrounded on three sides by water, but it's very fast moving current. And so to besiege the city successfully, you need to besiege it by land and sea. And in 626, it's the first time that you have a Persian force that can mobilize a sea uh, siege and a land attack that's coming from the Balkans. Uh, And so the city in 626 is in real danger of falling. Uh, And the emperor has not the army anywhere near Constantinople to relieve it. Instead, he has invaded Persia to try to get Persia uh, to withdraw from all of the territory in Syria and Israel and Egypt that it seized in the east. Uh, all uh, all um, of what we call Turkey. I mean, basically the, the all, yeah. And also by this time they've conquered uh, Egypt, right? Uh, they and also yes. for, you know as Christians they've taken Jerusalem and they re- removed the true cross from the Holy Sepulchre. I mean, this is like apocalyptic crap. This is it like is apocalyptic. This, this is Second Kings. This is you know this is Revelation stuff is going on. Um, and so Heraclius left the defense of Constantinople to um, basically the patriarch of Constantinople. And he leads processions around the walls and asks the Virgin Mary to come and defend the city. And uh, and Constantinople is more or less left to defend itself while Heraclius campaigns, you know, 500 miles away. Um, and my, Constantinople literally, survives the siege. Yeah, literally making a sort of a Hail Mary pass. Uh, exactly. That's exactly what it is. It's, yeah. you know, the last force the Romans possess that's capable of fighting in the field. He does not use it to reconquer the territory Rome has lost because it can't. Right. Instead, he goes through the mountains of Armenia and he tries to go down into uh, the heartland of the Persian Empire from the north where the defenses are not as good uh, and attack Persia, you know, from the inside without worrying about retaking the territory he lost because he doesn't have the capacity to take it back. Um, and the Persian response is to knock out the capital. And if Constantinople fell in 626, that would be it. The story mm-hmm. would be over. You know, that yeah. army would do whatever it could to march its way back to Somewhere. try to preserve something of the state, but the state would be gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so 626 is this moment, this apocalyptic moment. And Heraclius's allies in Constantinople don't hesitate to say this. You know, this is the apocalypse. This is the Christians versus the Antichrist. If we fall, Christianity will fall. It is up to us to preserve you know, God and Jesus and all of the things that we hold to be central to 
um, this world that we've created. And so when they win at the siege of Constantinople, this validates some of that approach. But ultimately, Heraclius's Hail Mary works. And he wins and out of all places, he, Nineveh. <laughs> you know yeah. I, mean? I mean, these are places that are out of the Old Testament. They're, these battles are being fought. There. It would be, I guess, better for box office if it was at Armageddon. Could have been. But it was pretty <laughs> close to, you know, it was pretty close on the, on the ruins of the old Assyrian capital. Um, it's, and so what ends up happening is he wins this victory deep in Persian territory. And what I think we, we also have to understand is when Heraclius is doing this, um, both the Persians in their campaigns in the, in the Byzantine territory and the Romans when they're invading, invading Persia are destroying religious shrines. Uh-huh. So the Persians are destroying monasteries in Palestine and other places. And Heraclius is destroying Zoroastrian fire temples. Uh, and so when he, it really is a religious war, uh-huh. uh, and then when he wins this victory, the Persians agree to withdraw from all of the territory they took from Rome. Uh, and then this destabilizes the Persian state in a significant way. So there's a bunch of very quickly um, rising and falling Persian shahs. Uh, and while all this is happening, of course, <laughs> Islam has uh, arisen in the Arabian Peninsula and in the 630s, not long after Heraclius takes all this territory back, Arab armies erupt. Uh, and, you know, in 636, they've already defeated what remained of the Roman forces. Mm-hmm. And by the mid 640s, they've taken over all of Persia and they've taken over much of the Roman territory that Heraclius had taken back from the Persians. This and so is- by the time Heraclius dies, you know, you have this story of the Roman emperor who had won the most territory in Roman history and the Roman emperor who had lost the most territory in Roman history. Yeah. Um, and Heraclius, at least from what our sources say, it, it dies a broken man. Yeah. Um, he's even unable, he's, he becomes afraid of the water uh, and is unable to even cross the Bosporus to get back to Constantinople. And they have to build a bridge of boats so that he can, they put trees on the bridge of boats, so it looks like he's going through the forest. When You're he's actually telling that story. Crossing. I can't. I can't believe. Anyway, okay. That's the. I mean, then I'll, then I'll tell this. My that's the, the my favorite fake story of. I mean, it might have happened. <laughs> is the one where at, is it in Jerusalem when at, at one of the victory celebrations when they restore the cross, uh, their ambassadors come out of the desert and say, you know, Heraclius, uh, you must. There is only one God, and Muhammad is his prophet, and you must submit. And that's that could have happened, <laughs> yeah. But that that gives the that moment of this redemption followed by second apocalypse, uh, yeah. and this is why you know in six thirty Heraclius makes King Arthur look like well fake and mythological and like a jerk and and weak <laughs> in comparison, and then by six forty he is like the worst Roman emperor in history. I mean, he's not, but you know, there are others. There, it's a, it's a hot competition, but it's, it's talk about decline. Um, what yeah. do people make out of this? I mean, because this becomes this is, this is in many ways, people are obsessed about this story in Byzantine. This, this is a sort of, um, in Byzantine, they're obsessed with this story as anyone is with the fall of the Republic in Rome, right? I mean, because this is uh, this becomes like an Ur myth, I think, in some ways. Am I right in saying that until through the rest of the history of the Eastern Empire? So there's a couple of things about Heraclius that are are so distinctive. Um, the first is after he wins these great victories over Persia, he uh, 
does kind of what Augustus did. You know, he patronizes really significant authors to write things that glorify the, the regime and the, the great victory. I mean, I think one of the most interesting of these is a historian named Theophylax Makata, mm-hmm. who begins what's supposed to be a monumental history that describes the Emperor Maurice, the Emperor Phocas, and then the great victories of Heraclius. And he uh, lays out in his preface a, a plan for the project that's going to get in that direction. Um, but the history as we have it stops with the death of Maurice. And the reason is he didn't finish the work by the time Heraclius's fortunes had turned. Yeah. And so he didn't have the story that he thought he could tell. Uh, and so you have this revival that's supposed to be celebrated in, in every way as this validation of everything Heraclius is doing. And it's, it's almost stillborn. Uh, and it just dies on the vine. And the text doesn't even get finished. Uh, and so I think one of the things with Heraclius is people try to understand why that happened. And there are a few things that someone who believes that they are the chosen ruler of God um, do that in retrospect make you look bad. Uh, so he marries Martina, who is a family member. Um, this niece, is right? a, a uh, yeah, and it's I a great so. scandal. Yeah. Um, and Heraclius doesn't even hide this. I mean, he, he issues coins that have him and Martina and their kids on it. Uh, and at his high point, this is not something he hides from, but it becomes a source of attack when the Arabs start um, again, moving through and taking territory. Mm-hmm. Um, he also pushed a theological formulation that he felt could reunify the empire and, and bring back into the fold the Christian churches that had actually enjoyed significant autonomy under Persian control mm-hmm. um, in places like Syria and Egypt. And he pushes a theological formula that could solve that problem potentially. It but just once makes you everyone... lose Syria and Egypt... Yeah. It makes no sense to even try, and it just makes um, everyone it, really angry. I mean, on all yeah. sides. One of those, one of those compromises that you know the department ends up having a fistfight kind of afterwards. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And the people who were most upset about it were the people in the territory that remains Roman after the Arab conquests. So, uh, so what you get with Heraclius is a figure who is, I suppose, his uh, his tangible metrics are not good. <laughs> and there are lots of reasons why, if you are a Roman Christian, you can look at that and say, I have a way to explain that, right? Yeah. He married his niece. Um, he, he promoted monothelitism and, uh, you know, he was a heretic and he was, you know, he engaged in incest and all of these things explain why God was angry with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is a way to rationalize this across the seventh century. But by the time you get to the eighth century, um, they really struggle because it's not then just Heraclius who's failing. It's right. a long sequence of people. Uh, and, and so the story um, that had centered on Heraclius and his kind of almost Davidian um, mm-hmm. <laughs> fall from grace, yeah. uh, you know, becomes a more serious story that requires a bigger explanation than just Heraclius. Because by 719, it's the Arab armies are at the walls of Constantinople. Um, and let's very briefly, let's, let's, I want to jump from, of all things, the iconoclastic controversy to Baron de Montesquieu. So, uh, (laughs) let's, let's, (laughs) uh, let's explain then this is another, so this is, this is trying to find the larger rot within Rome and within Christianity and trying to end the decline. And like other narratives of decline from Sulla onward, it results in death. Uh, and it results in turmoil and tumult. So could you describe that briefly? Uh, so I think what we see, you know, across the, the subsequent 
800 years of Byzantine history is these stories that we've seen um, already starting in the Republic, they come back again and again. And there are people on the other sides of this. And so there will be emperors who will push theological ideas uh, that monks or other people in the in the congregations or in the communities oppose. And in some cases, those monks or others will be, pun- will be punished, um, executed or mutilated. Uh, and it's, again, in the name of restoring what was, in the view of the emperor or the person pushing this idea, a primeval, virtuous Christian approach that made Rome strong. And these were, in many cases, tied to military defeats or uh, economic dislocation or other problems in the Roman society. But now Christianity formed the language that you would use to articulate decline. Um, And it would form the way that you would address the solutions to these problems. Um, And so what you see across Byzantine history and across those next 800 years is the same rhetoric of decline, the same story of a society that was once good but has fallen away from it. But now the way that you return to it is is framed through a kind of Christian lens. Uh, And then as you get out of the Byzantine period, after the empire falls in 1453, what happens is um, you do have moves in Western Europe to try to recover this and to use the idea of Roman restoration Mm -hmm. um, as a tool to attack from the West to try to recover Constantinople. But by the time you get into the, the period of Montesquieu, Rome has become kind of an idea that you play with intellectually to try to explain concepts. And Montesquieu becomes very interested in both the success of the Republic and what he perceives to be the decadence of the empire. Uh, And Montesquieu follows on a tradition that we see in people like Flavio Biondo and and others, um, Machiavelli even, where he sees the beginning of the decline of, of Rome as connected to the fall of the Republic. And so when Montesquieu writes about the history of Rome, what Montesquieu is doing is, is looking at uh, the success of the Republic, uh, trying to understand what made the Republic successful, what attributes of the Republic lent itself to the kind of power that Rome was able to accumulate, and then a discussion about what happens in the empire and, and how it happens that something that was so successful as a representative democracy falls into this prolonged decline, but nevertheless continues to last for 1,500 years afterwards. And I think to Montesquieu, he, he acknowledges he started playing with this idea as you know something he intended to be maybe a small pamphlet, but it became a medium-sized book because it was so fascinating to him. And it, it helped influence um, some of his larger theoretical works as well. But then there's Gibbon, for whom it did not become a medium-sized book. It became, <laughs> you know, scribble, scribble, another scribble, scribble, scribble. Hey, Mister Gibbon, another damn great fat thick book. Um, <laughs> so what you set them up as sort of bookends. Uh, yeah, Gibbon has a different view. I mean, Michael McCormick used to say, uh, "Yeah, Gibbon says he's talking about the decline and fall, and Byzantine is unimportant." And he talks about it for Byzantium is unimportant. He goes on for for like three volumes about it. So it's a yeah, very yeah, yeah. long, it's a very long decline. Um, what's how is he different from Montesquieu? And in a way, you're saying what have we mis mislearned from Gibbon? I think. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things. I mean, Gibbon has been um, the person that people, historians especially, working on the later Roman Empire, love to abuse because yes, they, they feel do. like Gibbon has has taken the period they work on and given it a bad name. I think what we miss is Gibbon has actually rehabilitated the empire, mm-hmm. right? Montesquieu and the people before him saw the empire, the beginning of the empire as decline. 
And Gibbon starts by saying, no, the peak was, you know, the Antonines. The empire was the peak, not the republic. The empire was the peak. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what Gibbon is doing is, in a sense, rehabilitating some of Roman history that had been discarded by generations before him. And so we see Gibbon as this person who, um, you know, attacks a civilization that that has tremendous value and was incredibly adaptive. And that is true. I mean, some of the explanations that Gibbon has for what happens to Rome are not things that are really sustainable. Um, but it's also important to acknowledge that what Gibbon was doing was shifting the paradigm and shifting the chronology of Roman decline out of the Republic and into the empire. I um, mean, he had reasons for doing this. You know, he, unlike Montesquieu, he, he's very enamored with the system of what he perceived to be stable, balanced European monarchies of the mm-hmm. uh, late 18th century. And he, so he starts writing this in 1776. The first volume is published like right when the American Revolution <laughs> begins. Yeah. Uh, and by the time he finishes, the French Revolution is about to happen. And so his paradigm um, doesn't really work at all. Even when the books are published, the world he's trying to justify and explain through Roman terms doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, as opposed to um, Montesquieu, so who is the single most important thinker for any the American founders. Um, yeah, Montesquieu, by, by in a sense, is charting the future. Yeah. And Gibbon is explaining, you know, a, a, Montesquieu is charting a systemic future uh, that will actually come into being. And Gibbon is talking about a present reality that's about to die. Mm-hmm. And so Gibbon's explanation for the present reality that's about to die, um, in a sense, becomes irrelevant almost immediately. And so the work becomes a story about Rome, not mm-hmm. a story about his time. Uh, and the lessons it provides become then disembodied from any historical context. That's right. And so Gibbon's decline and fall of Rome becomes a kind of tool that, as Hal Drake says, you could use it any time you're upset about something. You take decline and fall of Rome and you associate it with whatever bothers you and you have an argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, that, and I think that this is part of why Gibbon's story has resonated for so long. Uh-huh. And this is why this his story then has resonated for so long. But there's a way in which the dangerous idea has also resonated. For it, it, it's a, it's an explanatory tool. It's an epistemological yeah. tool. It's also a tool for action. There aren't many of those. <laughs> it can do both, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. it's a blueprint for action. Yeah, and I, I think what uh, is particularly interesting in the American context is this is a tool that we use frequently. Sure. Um, you know, the, the founders were terrified of the decline of the Republic that Montesquieu lays out. I mean, one of the worst things you could do in, you know, the writings of Adams or the writings of Jefferson or the writings of Madison is call someone um, Catiline, because that was a sign that you'd entered not just a, a phase where people are behaving badly, but a phase where society is creating a negative feedback loop that will undo mm-hmm. the representative democracy. Yeah. Um, I, and I, so when they call Aaron Burr Catiline, they're thinking Roman history oh, yeah. um, as much as they're thinking 1800. There's a very, there are very few people. I think, and interestingly enough, it's Patrick Henry and Sam Adams who like Sulla. But they are, <laughs> yeah, and I don't, I have to, I, I'm pretty sure I remember that. But Adams also likes, Sam Adams also likes Sparta, which I never quite figured out. Um, huh. Uh, uh, but there's, yeah, Sulla is a, is a weird taste amongst them. Um, usually it's Sulla and you know, the Gracchi aren't too popular either. Um, anyone, no. who, you know, that's that sort of those, the, any sort of those uh, types of people are, you know, not good. 
Yeah. And, and I think what this shows is for us, Roman history represents a story that has an ending. Um, and it's an ending that we can find lots of ways to explain. But in American history or in, in American culture, the understanding of what leads to the end of the Roman Empire is not very deep. Um, we know it ended. We know it right. declined and fell. We know Gibbon's title. Um, but it becomes a kind of catch-all caution that we can use uh, as a way to criticize any kind of development in our society that makes us uncomfortable. Um, and so the same way that this started in Republican Rome as a tool to make people who feel some sort of dislocation in the world around them uh, understand a possible solution and give their support to somebody who promises that solution, we see that happening now. Um, we see that happening in the U.S., and we see the idea of Rome being used in that fashion by politicians, including some very prominent politicians like Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it would seem, though, that that's also – I'd be interesting. I mean, this is a whole huge book to go back and look through American political history and find similar things. And I can't, it might be possible – I was thinking about this to isolate it now by ideology – uh, mm. But um, I think that's a very recent phenomenon. I suspect it's something that Americans of all stripes uh, have been doing um, throughout American history. I don't know about Europe. I, I, I think I think that's probably right. I mean, I think that what's interesting is you can see references to Rome on both the left and the right right now. Mm -hmm. um, and on the right, it's about you know, it's about. Uh, immigration. It's about issues of sort of American culture. Mm -hmm. On the left, it's about issues of fairness. Yeah. Um, Although back on, I was thinking about this back um, 2004, it was about imperial overstretch. Imperialism. I mean, th yeah. There, there was a, there was a flood of books uh, mm -hmm. about, you know, um, about, uh, about America, the new Rome, corrupt, vile, Halliburton, crony capitalism, yeah. Imperial stretch. So people, they're just it's 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 somewhat like a blank sheet of paper. Has some lines. Yeah. There's a few objects, and you can shuffle them around. And you can use them for any purpose you want. Yeah, and when you have 1,700 years of history, you can always find a story that's going to work. You sure can. Yeah. Well, we've overlooked lots of excellent uh, stories. We didn't talk about Charlemagne. We didn't talk about Aachen. Uh, we didn't talk about uh, we didn't talk about the Paleogan, Paleologan Renaissance. Uh, we didn't talk about the blues and the greens. Uh, we didn't. Uh, we left out a lot. Um, to learn more about that, you're going to have to read the book. Um, if we're on, yeah, we are. If we were recording the video, you know, uh, Ed, you should hold up the book three times. I've been told. Um, in a Zoom in a Zoom presentation, but the book is "The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome: The History of a Dangerous Idea," um, and it's a great read and very thought provoking. Ed, thanks so much for once more being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Just a brief reminder: if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. 
You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.